Pauline Kale, she said that she commended the film about of its emotional power, the emotional power of the film, and she said that Pontikova, she called Pontik Pontikova was one of those one of the most dangerous types of Marxist. He was a Marxist poet. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Welcome to Cinema Italia. This is a new episode and we are relaunching uh, Cinema Italia for 2024. Uh, hopefully this will be uh, an extensive season. I'm aiming for 10 episodes and today I'm delighted to be talking to Lee Freeman, film academic extraordinaire. And uh, Lee, I saw he was getting Battle of Algiers, I think as part of his, his Christmas haul. And I just thought that is a film that I am passionate about and I want to talk about and I thought Lee would be the perfect guest for this uh, for this episode so, so thanks for coming Lee thanks for having me on it's a, it's a thrill to be talking to you about this you're right extraordinarily powerful visceral piece of cinema um, I think it's I think it's it's an, it's an important film to look at in consideration of where we are today geopolitically and what's going on in in um, in the Middle East and so on but um it's also such a fascinating film to look at in terms of its style and its its use of documentary style aesthetics. I think what's really interesting about this film is if if you talk about the idea of the of the of documentary as being documentary has always held a privileged position. First of all, it's 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 important to point out that this film is not a documentary. Mm. It's not. It's a fictionalized account of real events. Yet it doesn't come across like that. In terms of the what 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 academics call the indexicality. Of, of the image and so on, it looks like you're really witnessing history unfold before your eyes. And unlike, say, one of the great documentaries like Giga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera for, from the silent era, um, a Soviet documentary, which actually shows its own constructedness, its own artifice. So, so you see the film being filmed and you see the film being edited and so on. This does the opposite. That of Algiers does exactly the opposite. What it does is it's, it, it hides its own artifice, and it hides the fact that it's a fictional reconstruction, and it looks really real. So real, in fact, that I was re-watching it for this interview, for this talk, and I, uh, and I was still going, but that's real footage. That's surely real footage. They didn't do that, you know. I mean, most appallingly, the scenes of actual terrorist sort of atrocities look just look like how did they even you know did they film this where life was cheap how did they even do that the, the scenes where they're pulling the bodies out of the rubble and so on 
just looks like what we're seeing daily on the on the news now from cars. It, and it looks so real that you're right. You think, how can they do this? In fact, what's interesting is that when the film was uh, on its American release, they added a caption to it to say that not one uh, foot of footage was used of documentary or newsreel footage in the making of the film um, because it looks so real. And it still does now. And, it, and considering how real it must have looked at the time when people were used to watching these kind of grainy newsreels, uh, it looks it looks so authentic. Possibly, I think possibly one of the most authentic looking films I've ever seen, I think. Of course, Pontecorvo, had a had an advantage on the Italian neorealists because he could use more, with with um, improvements in technology he could use telephoto lenses, he handheld cameras and so on. The Rossellini, De Sica and so on didn't have the didn't have that uh, luxury, but it's so real. And but of course it, it borrows from the techniques of neorealists, Rossellini, De Sica, Visconti and so on had, had, set, had started. Um, in fact, I would call it. I would I would te- look at it in terms of a. You won't get this with anyone else, just with me. I'm just going to make it up. A, a neo, neo-realist film. <laughs> because it came out, about, it was released in 1966. And basically, neo-realism had kind of finished about a decade or so before that, in the mid-50s, really. The filmmakers had moved on. that, And kind of the Italian neo-realist thing was carried on internationally, really, by, well, by, by Monticovo, but also by... Things like well, even even the French New Wave and so on, uh, French Nouvelle Vague. They adopted some elements of the, of neorealism. And I would say actually that neorealism is one of those. Every now and then you get a, a, a cinematic movement that comes around that changes cinema history, how we look at look at films and how we, and how films are made. Ne- uh, Italian neorealism is one of those. That's it, I mean, its influence on on the new Hollywood. Yeah, or dogma in yes. uh, uh, with uh, Feston in in the what late eighties, I'm guessing, or early nineties. Yeah, I mean, just to talk for a second about the context and the and the sort of background of of the film. Uh, uh, Gilo Pontecorvo is um, an Italian uh, coming from a secularized. A Jewish family is not a practicing uh, Jewish family. Um, he's being brought up, leaves for France, Paris before the Second World War breaks out, so that he's um, basically to avoid the growing anti-Semitism. Returns to Italy and becomes a partisan and becomes quite a prominent partisan, actually a leader in the uh, partisans uh, in uh, Milan. So uh, an active member of the Communist Party also uh, until the uh, 50s. And like many uh, people who joined the Communist Party for idealistic reasons, uh, they were he was appalled by uh, Russia's crushing of the Hungarian rebellion and, and left. And so he, he later in life would sort of cast himself as much more of a, a man of the left. He, he, I think in a Guardian interview, he once uh, uh, characterized himself as. His approach to cinema, as you rightly pointed out, was very deeply influenced by the neorealists. His sort of first idea that, although he had tinkered with film in Paris, his first real sort of uh, moment of Damascene revelation was on watching Rossellini's Paisan. And so the 
he had made some films before Battle of Algiers. He'd made uh, a film, one of the earliest films about the Holocaust, Capo. Uh, in fact, you know, a, a controversial film at the time for his depiction of what was happening in in uh, the concentration camps and the death camps. Yeah, yeah. that controversy has all kind of been reduced to one single kind of tracking shot as well. <laughs> the criticism of that film, I think, is based on two things. One tracking shot, which seems a little ridiculous to me, actually. But, um, was it Jack Rivette who criticised the tracking shot originally when one of the prisoners electrocutes herself on the, on the fence? And also the melodrama in the set, which I think I, I have more in agreement with. I think I think it does become a little overly melodramatic in in the in the last act. Um, mm. I still think it's an incredibly powerful film, and and, and I was devastated when I when I, when I saw it. Um, it's not quite as as good as Battle of Algiers. Battle of Algiers, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's so. The bar is so high <laughs> with that. I mean, it's like uh... so when. When he goes and he he's making uh, Battle of Algiers, this is uh, very close to history. I mean, it's not even. I mean, it, it, he's making a film about events that took place only a few years preceding. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. I mean, the produce one of the producers, Sadi Yassef, was actually a fighter for the the Algerian Liberation Army, the FLN, and it was his idea to make the film. I think we need to point out that it's an Italian Algerian co-production. Yes, yeah. like and, and to give to give the to, to acknowledge the Algerian um, contribution to the film. Yassef had fought for the FLN and had an idea for a script because he too was he went. He approached Visconti first, I believe, who turned it down, and then Ponticovo. Now Ponticovo turned the film down because he thought it was, it was he thought it was too pro FLN. It was just almost like a hagiography of the FLN. Mm. There was no critique of, of, of the FLN. Oh, but he uh, Ponticovo at that time was working on a film set in Algeria. It was called Para, which was was about the um, the paratroopers, which was going to star uh, Paul Newman, um, and he showed this script to Yassif, and Yassif turned it down and said that that film will have absolutely no credibility with people in Algeria whatsoever. But you tell me Paul Newman's going to star in it, you might as well get John Wayne to star in it as, 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 as much credibility as it's got. So what Pontecorvo did is he took the memoirs of Yassif written in prison when he was imprisoned by the French and used that for the script and combined it with elements of his power film with the paratroopers when they arrived in, Al in, in Algiers and um, later on in the film. Um, and Yassif really liked that, so they got together and, the, and they, they made this film. And you're right, it was made only like, let's say, close to the historical events that it was portraying. But also, I think it's important to think how it also fed into the anti-colonialist kind of arguments for, from, that would come from the new left and so on in the in the late in the late sixties. And also, of course, it's hard not to read comments about the Vietnam War that was going on at its height at this time. Well, the Vietnam War is actually name checked because uh, Matthias, the uh, head of the parents who comes in, uh, is a veteran. And also, you know, uh, linking to maybe a, a comment on uh, Pontecorvo's own war experience, uh, he's also uh, an ex partisan. Uh, partisan. He's an ex yes. uh, member of the resistance, uh, French. Yeah, partisan. I can't. He says at one point something along the lines of that. In 
know, they call us fascists, but some of us fought against fascism. Without being too controversial, it's a similar sort of argument that's used with <laughs> Israel and so on, isn't it? Um, that we cannot be, we've suffered, so we cannot be fascists or we cannot be oppressors. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of our own historical uh, uh, legacy of oppression gives us sort of immunity, um, which was most recently uh, one of the ministers of uh, the Israeli government referred to South Africa's bringing of um, the war crimes accusation as being a blood libel, which I thought was uh, the the way that phrase was used, the historical resonance that phrase has, was was controversial to say mm-hmm. the very least. I mean, I don't think we need to shy away too much from contemporary resonance because this film is entirely built to um, to excite those arguments, and I think the film is subtle yeah. enough that it isn't it uh, you know i don't think it's propaganda <laughs> you know i don't think it's just simply you know a rah rah for the fln no it isn't it, it, it's it's pro resistance it's pro revolution mm. and yet it critiques and it actually shows you the human cost of the fln's terrorist activity whilst at the same time supporting their resistance but, mm. but critical support of their resistance, which I think is really interesting if you're talking about today's climate. You cannot, um, um, we hear a lot about these Israelis' rights to defend themselves, but we hear very little at times about the what, what is actually written in international law about a people who have oppressed the right to resist. And as soon as someone says that, I support the Palestinians' resistance, or I support their right to resist, immediately then they are condemned as supporting everything that Hamas October 7th, so you support that there. Well, it is possible, surely, to have a nuanced argument and to be able to say, actually, I support resistance, I support their rights to resist, as as it is written in international law, yet I can still condemn acts like October the 7th and so on. And I think well, it, it, seems, it seems really mainstream media and so on seems to just not allow for any kind of nuanced argument or any kind of analysis. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think just to make it absolutely clear, my my position would be that it is entirely consistent to condemn October the 7th and condemn what has happened in Gaza ever since. I mean, you, I, I can't see how you can condemn one without condemning the other. So mm-hmm. I, I I don't yeah. see that as a contradiction. And I don't I think the whataboutery, I mean it all I think we need to get rid of this word but when we talk about politics. Mm. You know, yeah. I condemn this, but you know, it's not. I condemn this and and yeah. I condemn yeah. this, which is yeah. much yeah. back to the film. I think now we've nailed our colours to the to the flag. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the film. One thing that is striking about this film is, uh, you know, yes, there is the 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 telephoto lenses that you talked about. There is the non-professional actors. There is the the use of a kind of aping of uh, not aping is the wrong word, but almost pastiching of of news footage. But there's also this idea that from a narrative point of view. The narrative is very differently constructed to how you imagine a narrative is usually constructed in a feature film. Yes, I mean one of the, the, the there is there is ellipses, and one one of the things that the film uh, the film theorist and critic Andrea Bazan loved about Rossellini's films was was the ellipses and the fact the lack of merit, the lack of um, character motivation and, and mm. so on. And I think 
you kind of get a little bit of that in this. I mean, you, you, we see at the beginning of the film, the film's central character. There's not really a central character in the film, but if there is one, it's um, Ali Lapointe, who was played by an uh, 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 Algerian peasant. One of the things about that Pontecorvo was really strict about in his, in his casting, and he believed firmly, was that acting ability wasn't important. What was really most important was how the character looked and their mannerisms. And, it's, and he believe, even if the even if the the actor couldn't act, even if the person they've chosen to play the role couldn't act at all, I got the lines and so on. Pontecorvo says you can get around that. You just need patience. You couldn't do that in the theatre, but with with the right shot and so on, you can just capture capture someone's expression, and you've and you've got it. And he was really strict about it, believing in that. And it was a tendency in Italian cinema to sort of dub. Uh, everybody anyway um yeah. you know so so in that way that was another way he could get over non-professionals not being able to deliver their lines particularly well or um the name of the actor who plays Ali Lapointe I mean as you say he's a non-professional he goes on to have a career after uh, battles of Argies. he's called Brahim Hagiag I mean there was only one or two actors in in the world, uh, in in the um the most important actor is the who played Colonel Mathieu was Jean, Jean Martin, who actually was struggling to find work in France at the time because he had signed a petition against French involvement in Algeria, basically anti the Algerian war, basically trying to get the troops out of Algeria, basically. And he was struggling to work, so he was ideal for this. And one of the great things of this film is the fact that we talked about the 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 human cost, it shows you the human cost of the of the um, FLM's activities. But it also, and Pontecorvo was quite, and even even, even Yasef, the ex-FLM, the producer, was, was quite adamant about this as well, that he didn't want to portray the French just as monsters, like typical Nazi monsters that you see in, in a kind of typical Nazi, you know, all the, all the usual villains, stereotypes, you know. He wanted to portray them as being intelligent, and articulate, and 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 Jean Martin does this perfectly. He's, he's, a, he's a really um, quite an arresting, intelligent, charismatic figure. He's got some of the best lines as well. I mean, he, mm. he explains things, and you and you go with his explanation. Why don't we have any Jean Paul Sartre's? You know, <laughs> Sartre. You know, why are the Sartres always on the left? You know, why aren't, yeah. don't we have any on the right? We just get Fox News. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I'd like the Thatcher one. Is what, what, what comes to there's also that great line from, but it's not from. It's during the interview, but it's, it's from the the FLN. One of the FLNs being captured about red baskets. And oh <laughs> yes, you give us your aeroplanes and your bombs, and we'll give you our baskets. We'll give you our baskets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is um, actually it's very very relevant. It's about that. It's about the that both sides are committing violence. It's just that one side has the has the weapons and the military. Actually, it's important as well to point out that I think we're talking about the relevance today that this film was screened in the Pentagon. Battlefield Jesus was screened in the Pentagon leading up to the Iraq war by George W. Bush, I think, in, mm. because, because the film is seen as a kind of a, almost a textbook description of how guerrilla uh, armies operate. And George Bush thought that maybe maybe the military could learn something from watching this film, which which begs the question: What didn't he understand about this film? Because if, if there's one overriding message, it's that no matter how no matter your reasons for it, uh, invading a country, and occupying a country, no matter how more superior you are military-wise, it will end in atrocities, torture, 
ignominy and eventually defeats. And so it's it's a shame that George Bush didn't get the message that this film was actually trying to say. Yeah, it was like the it, the film in no way implies that there's a third way of doing this, that, that there's some <laughs> other way of winning this battle. No. Um, it's it, it, what you say about the, the lack of just clear cut binary, these are villains, these are the good guys. Um, I think it's exemplified by a shot that all, almost brings me to tears. And it's such a strange moment to get, you know, mushy about because it seems like this isn't the sort of film. It is a film that, that stirs strong emotions. Um, but it's a scene when a bomb goes off at a racetrack and, um, a Algerian child is selling like cigarettes or, or popcorn or some. So he's a vendor and he's turned on by the crowd and they start beating him. And then it looks, you know, kind of likely they'll beat him to death. And he's rescued by a French policeman. And there is something that even talking about it makes me fill up because there's just a, an, a, an act of human decency by somebody you're not expecting to be an agent of human decency yeah. in a in an atmosphere of utter hatred and in, and in which that hatred is kind of understandable you're seeing them pull out yeah. the bodies of young women and, and young men who are just on a day out and their lives are destroyed and here's an an you know, a representative. Here's somebody who could have planted the bomb. Yeah, and also you see, you see the child's face as well. Because soon as so, so he starts to look and he knows it's terrified because he realizes that I'm going to get, I'm going to pay for this now. Right at this moment, I'm going to pay for it. And even the crowd that attack him admit that, admit that you, you're going to pay for this. We're going to take it out on you, as though you may not be responsible. You may be responsible. And that's, I mean, let let's. Talk a little bit. Let's contradict. Let's counter that with these scenes of the of the, the Algerian FLN terrorist bombs going off. Because that sequence in the in the 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 cross cut in between the three bombs that are placed in the the office, the Air France offices, um, a milk bar, and a, a cafe, and and there was an extraordinary sequence there where where the the film sound alters it cuts between diegetic sound in 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 the in the cafe and then you get the hear the african the algerian drumming and and you see a montage of shots of customers in the in the cafe and you know and there's a cut with shot close-ups of the clock ticking because you know that there's only 20 minutes or so before the bomb's going off and there's a number of really close shots one of a child licking an ice cream and you're watching this and you're realizing that they're going to be dead very shortly and he's and then it cuts to the clock again ticking and then suddenly what I, I noticed there's a sudden flash zoom into the center of the clock and then you hear the bomb and you see the explosion and i think that's it's an extraordinary piece of filming when i first saw the film in 2006 i remember that year because i was i support italy i'm a big italian football fan and that was a year italy won the world cup there you go i, I watched the film in london as part of screened as part on the on part of marxism um, political conference and that coincided on the weekend with Italy playing in the World Cup final. I'd been to see Italy qualify in the Italy end with my younger brother earlier that year and then I was in London and on the night I was walking around with thousands of Italians in, 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 in the West End but it's quite an emotional moment but that's how I remember the year. It's also the year that Gilles Pontecorvo was supposed to come and give an introduction and answer a Q&A about the film but sadly, he was ill 
and mm. he died later that he died in the in the in the October or November of that year, I think a few months later. Mm. Um, but I remember coming out of the film and one young student or one young political activist, I don't know, said just asked me, I didn't know I didn't know who he was, just picked on me, I think, and said, Why is that film so highly rated? He didn't like it. He says it's just a lot of terrorists killing each other. To which I said something along the lines of, um, I think if that's all you think that film is, then I don't think you've understood it much at all. So now, kind of 18 years after, I suppose now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say all those things that I'd like to say to that student or that, that young man who, who didn't like the film all those years, all those years ago. Um, I hope he's listening. Yeah, that would be, that would be, uh, I mean, if we get anybody going, going and digging out this film i think it's available i'm not sure if it's available on uk prime so i, I it's readily available to, to 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 screen criterion as you know have done an, an, an excellent um yeah. transfer of it recently mm-hmm. i i think that you know i i don't want it to give the impression as well that this is is like just a political film this is a, this is a, a portrait of a society this is a portrait of people in extreme circumstances and as you say that sequence with the bombs it could be filmed by hitchcock except yeah. you know in terms of the the turning of the tension and that zoom that you talk about will be very typical of italian exploitation cinema going on uh, later when you yes, have the giallos and the, you yeah. know it becomes a yeah. sort of and you've got to remember You've got to remember, you know, his his cinematographer, whose name I'm going to look up so I don't. Uh... Marcello Gatti. Oh, perfect, perfect. He's uh, uh, Marcello Gatti. He's uh, he's he works on like spaghetti westerns before this. He's worked on like big uh, plenum films and genre films. So he's not coming from necessarily just a pure neorealist or you know, highbrow cinema uh, background. He's coming from from this kind of thing. So they're, they're putting together these sequences with that in mind. They know how to how to use the audience. And in a way, those sequences go against that cinema verite thing, because although they look like cinema verite, they're edited in a way which and 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 entirely to build up tension, entirely to have an effect on the audience. Well, the editing of the film is quite interesting in, in the sense that it, Ponticovo was insistent that the film wasn't edited in the classical continuity style of editing, you know, the shot of air, shot pattern of field and so on like that. Um, but, I mean, of course, there are some sequences where it is. I, and the first editor, uh, Mario Serendre, edited it that way. So then um, Mario Mora came to re-edit the film. I think Serendre died. But what again, what's interesting about how how that editing is is the in-camera editing you know, of a lot of the crowd sequences and so on. Um, and it comes across because of the lightweight cameras. Um, Pontecorvo said you can you, you don't need to cut with those sort of cameras from a from a from a longer shot, from a medium long shot into a, a closer shot. You can just move the move the camera in towards them. Mm. And and that's where it gets its very very tasks kind of qualities from because when in the crowd sequences and so on and the battles you see the the camera almost responding to the action around it, following the tank, following the people yeah, falling yeah. over, having to refocus mm. around. I mean, this has been um, a technique which has been using direct cinema and observational cinema and, and uh, documentaries and so on. But people like Ken Loach have used this technique in the, the schoolroom sequence in Kes when all it's, it's almost as though the camera's 
thought catching, missing things, missing things that someone mm. said and then trying to catch up to the action. Do you see? I mean, that's what's happening in this film. But you're right. There's, then there's those sequences which are, are totally skillfully edited. Mm. The bombs, the bomb sequences. It's replicated in the milk bar. The, the, the bomb that goes up in the milk bar just afterwards. Um, is it absolutely incredibly tense, almost a thriller. Mm. And in fact, actually, what is this film? It's a drama. It's a dra- you said it's. We don't want to talk about it just as a. Not don't want to give the impression that it's just a political film. Well, you're right because it's it's a drama documentary. It's uh, it's got political elements of third cinema and so on and post-colonial cinema. But at the same time, it's it's you could just watch it on the basis of it being an action political thriller. Yeah, <laughs> I can, I'm kind of responding as well to your to the guy walking out of the screening and saying, well, it's just terrorists blowing blowing each other up. I mean, it's almost as if that person, in a sense, want, maybe wanted more politics in it or, or wasn't sort of... But there is, there mm. seems to be such a variety in it. There is that. There are those thriller elements. There is the. I mean, it does very complicated things with time as well. You you start the film at the very beginning. The first shot you see is in a torture chamber, uh, post the torture. You know, so you see the aftermath of torture, which has got the information. Torture, yes. torture has worked. Then you get the a little bit of bark. And then you, uh, which which tells you what we're watching is actually a tragedy, and, and why are we hearing this sort of very European Christian music in the midst of North Africa, a North African torture room? It's a bit of colonial perspective for you right there. And then you get this Ennio Morricone score, which Pontecorvo collaborated with him on, of this amazing, mm-hmm. yeah, just That's amazing story. percussive sort of. I think what's interesting about the, there is two really percussive elements to the score. There's the percussion of the, as I mentioned earlier, the, what's based on beggar, beggar percussion music from Algeria, uh, street kind of music. And then you've got the percussion score of the military. So it's almost as though the, the conflict on the screen, the the action is kind of reflected also in Morricone's score. Um, and then, that, and then I never thought of that. I never thought of that. It's brilliant. Yeah. You get that conflict between the two. In the in the score as well as as well as what we see as well as in the narrative, and um, and then there is also the kind of the Gregor, Gregorian I think that's been described as um, choral music in the torture sequences. I mean that's not an attempt at verite either, is it? To put that music in the non diegetic sound, it, 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 it's it's a it's it's a stylish flourish. It's a stylized uh, touch, and then you've got the. Ali's theme, which is kind of, um, which now when Pontecorvo was working with Morricone, um, for, for weeks they couldn't see eye to eye. Everything that Morricone suggested, Pontecorvo didn't like. Everything that Pontecorvo suggested, Morricone didn't like. And then, um, really early one morning, Pontecorvo got this idea for a, a melody which would become Ali's theme. And he was so excited and he'd interest himself to play it to Morricone. He recorded it on a tape and then he rang Morricone and says, um, when can I come around? I've got an idea for a melody. And Morricone says, as soon as you can, as soon as you can. So early morning, he took off. Now, Pontecorvo tells this story and Morricone lived on the top apartment of a block, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of a, an apartment block. And he was so excited was Pontecorvo that he, he, was, he, he raced up the stairs whistling this thing to himself. And then he arrived at Morricone's apartment 
and Robert Kearney says to him, okay, so you've got an idea, but I've got an idea for his song as well. I've been at first day for some music in the film. And he sat at his piano and proceeded to play exactly the same theme that Ponticovo had written back at his apartment earlier on. And Ponticovo couldn't believe this. He says, I can't believe it. This, you, that's my theme. That's my music. Morricone brushed this off, saying, we've been working together for weeks. Of course, uh, our ideas will rub off on each other. And Ponticovo says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's exactly the same notes. And they got uh, Morricone and his wife in to... She said, yes, it's the same melody, exactly. And for a while, Ponticovo couldn't couldn't accept this. He thought, this is this is uncanny. This is this is this is this this can't happen. Until when the film won the Golden Lion at Venice, at the Venice Film Festival, Morricone took Ponticovo aside and said, Of course I didn't write that melody. I heard you whistling it as you was coming up the stairs, and I got to the piano really quickly to do it. And I told my wife I would only um, let on to the joke I've been to the trick I've been playing on you if we won the Golden Lion at Venice. So that's when he told Ponticovo. Uh, oh, brilliant! The trick I've been playing on him. What a, what what a fiendish uh, <laughs> what a fiendish sense of humour Morricone has. <laughs> he's uh, he's someone so uh, I I love Morricone. He's such a he's oh, a yeah. he's a figure who goes through a lot of. Italian cinema, obviously, but cinema yes. generally. And one of the one of the, one of the old time one of the old time great film composers, and I think this was made before he kind of made his name. Is am I right in saying this this film, or was he on his way at this point? Yeah, sixty six is about when he's 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 already scoring films uh, right. and has been scoring them for a few years, but um, he hasn't he hasn't absolutely he's certainly not got an international fame yet, right? Because he hasn't, you know, all his spaghetti westerns would only come out in America uh, in about 67, 68, I think. Yeah, so around this period, it yeah. was starting to be, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those films that I always think, I'll, I'm not I'm, I'm not going to listen to the soundtrack to this because there's not that much music in it, because you think it's such a documentary. And then you re-watch it and go, there's music all the way through this. This, is, yeah. this hasn't sort of got that documentary thing of, of you know no music at all and we'll just have it as a documentary yeah. um the design sound as well i mean I'm, i think i'm thinking of the illustrations and of the of the of the algerian women which sounds menacing and it brilliantly does and it, and even as i said the bomb sequences where the where the, where you, you move from the sound of the cafe the diegetic sound of the cafe to the drumming and so on and, and even and i thought for years i thought when that clock you hear the ticking of the clock but actually, I don't think you do. If you do, it's very quiet. I thought it suddenly cut to the sound of the ticking, but it isn't. It, it's just that you feel like you're hearing that ticking of the clock because it's so powerful and so disturbing and so um, suspenseful. Yeah, it's so ingrained. And I think they do that Hitchcock thing as well. You know, Hitchcock always has that thing. Uh, I think he did it in Marnie of making you sympathize with the thief because you you you've had you've got a certain intimacy with them and so mm. you you will follow them. So the same thing's true of the people planting the bomb, you know, when the old lady says, "I don't really look European, do I? I'm not going to be able to do it. Don't worry, I'll take a child along and that'll really? probably do it." And you sort of like, "Oh, yeah, thank God. She's, she'll she'll be able to do do it now and it's like wait a minute who am i who am i backing here what am i involved with and it he this film makes you empathize with terrorists and it makes you empathize with torturers 
because you can see the other point of view as well. When yeah. they have the barbecue, uh, this is the police chief who feels his hands are tied by legality. Um, and him and his pals take a, a night trip into the Casbah to just murder some people, leave the wives behind and just, and you, you're again, you're kind of understanding where they're coming from, even as you deplore their activities. I, I, I want to mention this idea of the of what sort of film it is as well, and the, and the power of the film. Pauline Kales really, really loved the film, and she said that um, she commended the film about of its emotional power, the emotional mm. power of the film. And she said that um, Pontikovo, she called Pont Pontikovo was one of those, one of the most dangerous types of Marxist. He was a Marxist poet. And I think that's right. I think there's, a, there's poetry. It's not just let's capture, let's capture real life. And, and, and it's it's staged to such an extent. It just, as I said before, it makes it look, it, there's an illusion of like you're actually just watching events as they happen. But there's also some other incredible poetical moments in the film. The ending, for instance, is is really emotional. I think when it, when it, I, I don't think this is a spoiler because we all know that Algeria got their independence a little bit, um, a few years, uh, what, 50, when when would the Algeria get their independence in the end? When, 50, Six, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so 10 years before the film was actually made, uh, released. Um, but the, the ending, when you see... The, the 62, story, actually, 1954 to 1962, uh, according 50, to, to uh, Wikipedia. You see, it's, you see if, if Italy had won a World Cup in that year, I'd have remembered it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure they didn't? Because they have won a few. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think the others are coincidence. I think... Mm, most of the others coincided with the fascist era, I think. I think, ah, right. well, I think they won two. I, I tend not to count those two. Fair enough, uh, fair enough. And, of course, the Venice Film Festival was created by fascists, so we don't want to, yes, <laughs> we don't but, want to forget that. And so was the Cinecita Studios, wasn't right. they? Right, right. Yeah, Mussolini-esque architecture of the time. Sorry, I interrupted your point, I think. It ends on a real moment of hope, I think, for, mm. for three. If, 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 you've been, if you've imbibed in this kind of, this revolutionary fervour of the film and this idea that independence is a good thing and, and resistance towards colonial oppression is, is, is worthy, then the end film ends on a real emotionally powerful moment. But as it happens... When the film went into production, when when it was filming in Algiers, it was about a month or so after the military coup, which had been, which had kind of, it's almost like that John Pilger saying of we'll have freedom next time. It's one of the when when the, the actual the people's desire for democratic freedom and and liberty is kind of like put on the shelf for a little while. Um John Pilger called it wrote a book about that subject called Freedom Next Time, but we'll mm. have to wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the film ending, I mean, so so what you have is from the very beginning, you know, Ali Pont and his confederates are holed up in a, like a priest hole uh, hiding place. And the army have surrounded it because they know where he is because of the torture that they've committed, which has worked, you know torture in this film is shown to be very effective in militarily defeating a terrorist organization and they are outside and they're sort of giving him the last chance to give up um and and potentially you know face trial or to or to just die a martyr's death and we've seen that happen we've seen it it happen 
previously in a film where uh, another leader has got to that point and gone, you know what? I don't think I want to die. It's useless sacrificing myself like this. So has handed himself over so, that, yeah. so, that, so that's possible that's possible that's a possibility you know and even politically it might make more sense you know you get a public trial you get to speak a bit more you become Ali Pont is, is like very fanatical and you're not he's not going to do that and the, ch- the child with him there's a woman with him there's another confederate with him and uh, the police blow it up and everybody um Everybody is crying outside, and the population is is, and the military walk away with this kind of very hubristic, pyrrhic victory, where they're saying, you know, the the, it's all it's over now. We've got peace. And the funny thing is, I like I like this country, and they like us, and we should, everything should be fine <laughs> now. And so you think, what idiots? And then it says, you know, a few years later, there's this huge demonstration. But the interesting thing about the huge demonstrations, which bring about the independence and the decolonization of Algeria, is that it's not the the terrorists don't win via their methods. It's a huge popular uprising, not a, a, a sort of Leninist vanguard of um, cell like, you know. And so again, you you it's sort of like the question is open: Do the terrorists? inspire that national uprising or did the terrorists actually uh take everyone down a cul-de-sac you know in other words to, to sorry to compare it to today's situation hamas has hurt the palestinian cause more than it's helped the palestinian cause if if we're looking at it from a similar perspective as the battle yes, of Algeria. I, 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 would, I would agree I, I would i would say that in a sense really i think um, Hamas and the Israel Israelis need each other in a sense, <laughs> you know, justify justify their own their own actions. Yeah, like um, the Paris and the FLN in yeah. in the but film. Now, the, the thing the thing that you've just mentioned about the what what sorry I've just missed the point. I was going to mention so I forget. What what is it you've just said? Because so it, it, uh, the huge demonstrations at the end. The line in the film. The line yeah. in the, there's a line in the film which which says that um one one of the FLN fighters says one of the leaders says we won't win just through atrocities, just through outrages. We yeah. need the people. We need the people. And and you're right. At the end of the film, it's kind of almost seen. It's almost not FLN led at all. There's, it's it's a the FLN don't know a great deal about where these demonstrations suddenly occur. It, it, the, the 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 film tells you, um, it just seems to be sp- um, a sporadic kind of uprising that's not planned at all, not, mm. not orchestrated at all, just occurring. But it's an extraordinary sequence of uh, of filming that. I mean, not some of those a pure Eisenstein as well. You see the Eisenstein elements. In fact, but there's even a steps at some point as well. Um, Pontecorvo said that for him, the ideal film director is three parts Rossellini, one part Eisenstein. And you see, that we've talked about the neo-real, the location shooting, the use of non-actors and so on, and all the, the, the three parts Rossellini. Some of those crowd scenes are pure Eisenstein. And in fact, the scenes when the, the, the Jews get off the train in, uh, in, in Pontecorvo's previous film, Capital, um, Pure Eisenstein as well. This is mm. some Eisenstein elements in there. And I, I would put Eisenstein's ideas of montage in amongst Italian neorealism as one of those things that have influenced cinema that I mentioned earlier on. That's every time there's a kind of movement comes along, 
along that that changes the way we look at films and changes the way that films are made. I would put some of Einstein's ideas about montage and so on in with Italian neorealism. There's two of those great movements, which in fact, actually the Italian Italian cinema has had a, has had a hugely influential, not just Italian neorealism. I was thinking about this the other day in terms of Giallo, Gialli. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm a huge horror fan, and you cannot watch a horror film now without seeing references to uh, Dario Argento. Also, uh, 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 yes, um, Mario Barber and so on. Even, 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 I know there was a podcast from it, which I really enjoyed on on, on this Italian Cinema Italia podcast on Salo. But uh, to me, Salo is a horror film. It's, it's mm. a kind of, uh, to me, it's the best torture horror. It's an elevated torture horror, they'd call it today, if we can release today, I think. <laughs> um, and also Spaghetti Western, as you mentioned, a huge influence on on how the Western changed and, and on the modern Western. So Italy, it's not just all about neorealism, what, it, what the, the influence that Italian cinema has had on world cinema. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the big one, I suppose, but there's also these other little uh, pockets of um, influence that they've had. Um, yeah, I mean, you okay. could go. You could even go right back to Kabiria and uh, silent cinema having. Uh, yeah. this, this, I mean, before the war, um, you know, silent cinema was was the center of cinematic universe. You could argue was more Paris and Rome than it was Hollywood. You know, it was mm. it was they they were more um, yeah. equal partners. And Berlin, of course, um, and then post war that. In, that shifted um, much more towards Hollywood, and um, yeah, well, much more towards Hollywood. Now it's it's shifting again. You know, now we're getting other centers. We're getting you know things like Bollywood coming into the to, to a, a more global prominence. Yes. Yeah. Go. Cool. Just let that sink in. Let that sink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how that will. I'm not sure how that will work. But um, yeah, I mean, so to leave Pontecorvo's battle years, I think we. I think the last sort of question we we should have, which is a, an extension of what we're just talking about, really, is kind of like its lasting influence. And I mean, there are lots of people who are on record stating that this is film has been hugely influential. Um, I think you can see uh, Stanley Kubrick was hugely influenced by it, and I think mm. you can see bits of Full Metal Jacket being, um, yes. yeah. you know, ha having moments of of. Uh, Pontecorvo. Pontecorvo himself, uh, you know, went on to make Burn, which was a, 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 you know, very troubled production with Marlon Brando, but I think is a fascinating film. It's really I, worth watching. I do. I, I, I've watched it again recently, and I think it's, I think it's, um, again, as you said earlier, with Battlefield of Algiers, I set the bar that high that everything else is going to, well, it's not, it's not as good. Um, I had a little problem with Bane in terms of, I thought it's, I think one of the great, the strengths of Battlefield Years is its narrative precision. It's And I think, I think Bane was a little bit flabbier. The narrative mm. was a little flabbier. could have done with trimming a little, a little. Um, but of course, yeah, um, there was, a, there was a lot of trouble between, I mean, Brando's brilliant in the film, incidentally. I think Brando's superb. Um, and there was, um, 
but he, he did have a very fractious relationship, I think, with with the filmmakers. As, as you expect, Marlon Brando was well renowned for being a little bit problem, for being a bit. Um, it's incidentally, he had a very good, interesting views, but Marlon Brando on, on colonialism and so on. You think about his 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 support for the Native American argument of um, things like that. So, so it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a natural joining together, I think, with Pontecorvo. Yeah, I think his contradiction is always that he wants to um, he wants to engage in difficult films, but he doesn't necessarily want to play the roles that are available to him in those films. In other words, he's the slave trader, and um, he can't yeah. help but bring, with his actor's vanity, bring Brando's charisma to the role, and, yes. and that's a real difficult point to make. And he doesn't. And he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to um, surrender to the director on any particular level, does he? he mm. you know, I want to play this this way. You know, and Pontecorvo wasn't having that. I think he says no, because especially with idea of views of realism, he did. He wanted. He wanted. He wanted. Um, he didn't want to muddy the the script and the ideas he had for the film. And Bandil was wanting to play it a different way. At times, mm. I think another filmmaker sort of coming up to, to sort of more present day, and it's someone who I was thinking of when we were talking about um, there being a bigger world outside of what the camera is showing. So the camera's yeah. trying to catch up, and this might come strike some as coming out of left field, but someone like Paul Greengrass, um, who obviously is well known for the Bourne films, but really cut his teeth on things like Bloody Sunday, in yeah. which he filmed historical events. As a period film, but he he's he's filming them as if he's filming a documentary, and like uh, Battle of Algiers, Bloody Sunday, which I think is a little bit of a forgotten film, which I think it was James Nesbitt, I think is the most recognisable actor mm. in it. It's been a while since I've, I've saw that years quite a while yeah, ago. Yeah, you you sort of have the soldiers uh, as actual characters who are you know three dimensional human beings, and you have the. You know, you have the, the the people who are in the demonstration and the people who are the IRA who are using the demonstration to some degree, and and so it it's a it, it ha, is a very complicated thing. And then of course he takes that shaky camera thing and he uses it for Bourne yeah. and he uses it for uh, other less you know well well not less films but more generic films let's say. Soderbergh, well, Soderbergh as well has been on record saying he's hugely influenced by. Can I put in something that's really out there? Star Wars, George Lucas, Star Wars is is is. I think when when the troops arrive with Matthew at the front, this was just the stormtroopers in 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 Star Wars with, right. with, Darth, with Darth Vader at the front, and it's a film, and it's a film about. Uh, it's a film. Star Wars is a film about resistance and and, and um, Reds. The Reds are, 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 um, are resisting and, the Empire. And we and you and you and also you see you see terrorist atrocities in the film. The blowing up of the Death Star, Death Star at the end. No one no one talks about those innocent people killed on the Death Star, do they? It's all justified in the, the cleaners and the cooks and so on. So uh, <laughs> Star Wars. I'll, I'll I'll put Star Wars there or something. Yeah, it's also got that tit for tat violence, hasn't it? You know, you blow up my planet, I blow up your planet. You know. Um... Well, it's it's true. Joking aside, Luke, Lucas was influenced by. I, I mean, 
the searchers who get, gets into the film. He also when Liefenstahl's um Chime for the Will is in is in Star Wars somewhere according to uh, according to Lucas himself. I mean, Lucas, I think, is a great technician, and he has that idea of... I mean, you'll see it in THX 1138 as well, and a lot of his... Um, yeah, Yes, absolutely. Um, although I haven't re-watched American Graffiti in an age, and that, right. I, don't, I think I've only ever seen it once. So that's one I, I really want to revisit, because I mm -hmm. think that's before, before he becomes George Lucas, you know, the Star Wars guy. Um, but even I remember listening to like him doing a commentary track, uh, track on Attack of the Clones, and he was talking about some shot at the very beginning where he moves the camera to catch a character, and yeah. he says, "Oh, that's uh, that. I want it to be, look like a documentary made in space." Right. And it's like, yeah, it's it. It hasn't really, you know, you haven't necessarily done that. All the CGI doesn't really help that, but I understand how that's influencing his framing and his camera movement. Well, it was part. It was part of New Hollywood, and I did say that, that uh, at the beginning that New Hollywood was influenced by Italian One Italian neorealism was one of the things that affected, and in combination with the Nouvelle Vague, was the things that made those Scorsese and so on make, want to make films and, and artistic films that that were that were had moved on from the golden age of Hollywood and had that these continental world influences. Yeah, yeah. And it was, of course, it was possible to, you know, walk down the street in New York and go into a cinema and watch, you know, some of the, the best foreign films uh, that were being made at the time and the great years of Fellini and Bergman and people like that, yeah. um, you know. Um, so, Lee, the last question I want to ask is is uh, for, a, for a recommendation for a, a, a sort of an Italian film you think people should go out that maybe they don't necessarily... Um, you know, maybe it's not La Dolce Vita or or but a film that is is a particular favourite of yours that you think people should see. I, I, well, I there's one that isn't often mentioned. I'll, I'll mention I'll mention two. Suspiria. If you, if, if no one if no one likes horror, no one's seen Dario Argento's Suspiria. Watch Suspiria, watch Suspiria and and see how it's influenced. Horror films. What did you think of the remake? What did you think of the right. Um I liked it up to a point. I mm. didn't like this political subplot, which seemed to be not connected. They kept mentioning it all the time, you know. The, the and it didn't seem. To, and I was thinking, yep, yeah, okay, then. So when's this going to connect with the rest of the narrative? And it just didn't connect at all for me. Mm. I thought it looked great. I like what I like what they did at the end. How they altered the ending. Without mm. giving it away. Um, but I didn't like that. Rather clumsily, I thought linked this this which didn't connect, and I thought they might as well just have cut that out. And I kind of got a bit. Oh yes, they're mentioning the terrorist bombs now, but I cannot see how it's connecting. It's so it was it seems to have been put in as an afterthought rather than with any real conviction. That was my problem with the with the film. But uh, I like the ending, mm. and I thought it looked brilliant. Oh, by the way, we just just to bring it back very quickly to Battle of Algiers. We mentioned the Pentagon showing it as a as a um, a film before the Iraq War. Also, it was one of the favorite films of one of the Bader Meinhof gang, and it was, it was accused yes. of being like a textbook for terrorists. That the terrorists were watching it as a, a either a recruiting device, but also a sort of how to, you know, which which makes you think. You know, I mean, if that's, you know, what 
plant bombs? Is that the the thing you've learned? Is that the it's not much of a textbook if that's your textbook? But um, it, it, it was banned as well in France. We haven't mentioned mm. that as well for a year, and then and then but then it wasn't screened for another four years because of terrorist threats against against um, threats of bomb threats at, at cinemas that were showing it because it, because of its uh, pro terrorist, pro Algerian, anti French. That some French nationalist types thought, thought, oh, well, we don't like this depiction of terrorism in this film, so we're going to threat and our own terrorism to counter that, which, go figure, go figure, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, we don't like depictions of terrorism, so we're going to bomb you. Yeah, yeah, we hate them so much. Yeah, it's like, yeah, uh, we're, we're pro-life and we're going to kill anybody who isn't. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's consistent now anyway the, the uh also by the way when, when it was re-released um i think in 2006 there was a re-release uh one of the few sort of uh publications that didn't sort of give it a good review was kaya's uh the the historical sort of magazine of french cineasts uh were very down on it but kaya's has always had a quite a strong right-wing slant so it was almost like a putting their flag in the ground of like where you know Pustif loves it so we're gonna hate it yes i'll say yeah so kind of, yeah kind of like the like kind of like the the opposition between the colonialists and the and the F- and FLN. Yeah. Yeah, the FLN you've got you've got that yeah you have a with us or against us sort of sort of <laughs> argument on a on a, on a critical and on a cinematic critical level it's you have a, it's like george bush and you have a wizard against this yeah exactly <laughs> sorry that, yes you second film. quite like which isn't which isn't technically i suppose it's direct, i believe it's directed i haven't seen this for years i really love il postino I mm. just think, because it combines some three things i really like italy poetry and left-wing politics all together and quite a beautiful gentle film and and very enjoyable not one of the greatest films ever made but i think a really lovely film to watch and, and emotional movie. and a wonderful performance by uh Troisi, who uh who yes. died um, uh, just after the film was exactly he, he was actually suffering from cancer during the the film uh it was his dream to make this film as well wasn't it? yeah he, yeah he, he, uh massimo Troisi, if you've not seen him in anything he's well worth uh he's a brilliant actor beautiful actor very sort of soft a comic actor, generally speaking. His films with uh, Roberto Benini are well worth. He does a time travel one called Non ci resta uh, ma piangere. I'm sure I've seen him in one or two things, but I can't, it's so long ago, I can't remember now, but it's a face of a, Maybe it's because I've seen Augustino so often. Yeah. He's, I, think, I think it's a beautiful film. If you've never seen that, it's really worth it. They go back to the... It's just like two ordinary guys who accidentally find themselves in the Middle Ages, and he pretends to sing Yesterday to one of them, but he can't... He says, oh, I know a song, and he starts singing Yesterday, but he doesn't have all the lyrics, and he's like... It's just uh, brilliant. It's actually the joke that the whole of Yesterday is based on, but he does it much better, and he does it much quicker. And I'm looking forward to seeing La... La Chiara is it this new this new Italian film which has just been released? It came in the Sight and Sound top fifty films of the year, which I'm looking at. Um Oh, which one's this? A Chiara? Yes, yes. That's uh yeah, that's coming in. That's uh what it's it's the I I I should know the name of the director because I met him. He's made like four films, mm-hmm. I think, or this it is quite interesting. Kind of. Yeah, he's got Jonas. That's it, Jonas Carpignano. Uh, yeah. These are films all set in Calabria, 
Yeah. Um, Achambra was the first one in 2017. And their Akiare is uh, the more recent one. It actually was released in 2021 in Italy. I think uh, it's it's just got to England. Um, wow. But it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's all of his films are based in these sort of um, groups of marginalized people in the poorest part of Italy, which is Calabria, right down by the, the you know, south of Naples, basically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, will be uh is well worth watching it's a really good film welcome to see this that this year but yeah and he's a yeah. he's a real voice that's coming that's continuing that uh, if you want to say where did neorealism go well there are people yes. out there who are still doing it and uh yeah. you see them more on the festival circuit that you, than you do in the multiplex sadly but um they are they do you can root them out and there are streaming services that uh make these films very readily available and as Zavatini said, the the for Zavatini, the important thing about um, neorealism was ordinary people and the ordinariness of their lives, the dailiness of their lives, which doesn't apply to Battle for Algiers actually, because these are ordinary people in in extraordinary circumstances. Or Rossellini's um, three neorealist films to an extent, but Zavatini. Um, stressed it was ordinary people without embellishment without artifice ordinary people showing them doing ordinary things which, which straight away made me think of jean dealman jane dealman actually which is exactly that mm. so, oh, suddenly oh and 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 suddenly the ordinariness of her of her existence can suddenly have great moments of of suspense oh she's got a spoon oh. yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah that that film does i i just i wonder about that film I'm 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 a little bit on the fence with it because it's it seems to sort of if that's what it was, if that's where it went, but it seems to end with it just seems to collapse into melodrama in the end because it's it has that it has that you know why why watch this woman for all this time if she's not going to murder somebody you know that's it, it, you know. Uh, it, it's it's actually incredible uh, brave it's a brave film incredibly brave film to actually stick to that um i found it incredibly monotonous and also hypnotically compelling as well at the same time <laughs> it kind of it kind of drove me in and i thought the ending was really powerful but i think you needed to have some sort of melodrama at the end of the film i don't think you i don't think you can as as zavatini said just watch that plane going over the sky once and then again and then again at 20 times Almost, almost forever. Um, I think you've got to add some drama and embellishment at some point for us to watch. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it, yeah, it's a self defeat. The self defeating thing of drama is ultimately we need the lie that there is going something's going to happen and there will be a beginning and a middle and an end and it will be, you know, str- not necessarily in that order. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, Lee, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thanks uh, for having me. It's been a lot of well. It's been a lot more fun than a discussion of Battle of Algiers should be, maybe. <laughs> but uh, but thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, it's, not, it's not. It's not. It's 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 not a comedy, is it? There's comedy in. There's quite a bit of comedy in Rome Open City, I think. Mm. Uh, you know. But yes, but thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure to come on. I, I love. I love your. I love your podcast. Actually, I'm in cinema. Um, I've got to catch up with a couple more that I haven't seen yet, but um, I think it's wonderful. Really? Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
Arrivederci ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.